This podcast is a co-production of ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts. Tell me what the cellars look like. <laughs> okay, um, the cellars are basically um, a kind of a, a labyrinth, really, of sort of small vaulted rooms, which are quite you know cold and damp and dark, which kind of are underneath the, the sort of the basement level of the house. Harewood House is one of the grandest country homes in Britain. It is wrapped in the green Yorkshire hills and this palatial building that is several storeys high is surrounded by perfectly manicured gardens. It has a china room, a state dining room. Actually, there's a lot of rooms and all of them are adorned with breathtaking art. Basically, it's got very big Downton Abbey energy. But the most interesting room, at least to me, is its basement cellars. Back in 2011, two men were poking around in this very cellar. And they came across sort of a couple of shells right in the, you know, sort of the farthest end of the the cellars, um, labelled bin 9 and bin 12, which was basically filled with mysterious bottles smothered in this thick black layer of of cobwebs and moulds, you know, really kind of quite toxic looking. um, And they were quite kind of fearful of actually touching these, you know, without gloves on. Yeah, I think she's underselling it. These bottles in bins 9 and 12 had, like, pustulous boils and tumours of mould. Just looking at it would make you want to get a tetanus shot. But not these men. What did they do? They did touch the bottles and they actually did quite a cautious um, taste test. um, (laughs) And they had kind of a a hunch that um, the bottles actually contained um, rum. Rum. Now, why would these men go down into the basement of a 250-year-old mansion with strong to very strong Disney Castle vibes to unearth ancient bottles of rum? Well... We now know it was officially the, the kind of the oldest known rum in the world. The world's oldest rum. Yes, when those men popped those bottles, they were uncorking a history that reaches right into the birth of the global British Empire. What is represented in those bottles is a spirit. It's the spirit of our people. You distill it, you concentrate it into its essence, and that's that's what that spirit is. How did that money buy and shape the estate? We always have to come back to where the money came from. I mean, that money went almost everywhere into building the modern British economy. So you've got pirates upon pirates, slavery upon slavery, as a tourist attraction. What has Barbados got to do with Harwood House? If you really want to find out what Britain's done, really want to find out, you have to funnel the money. The money trail is where everything is. My name is Mark Fennell, and in the days of the British Empire, things were taken. They usually ended up in museums and galleries, but sometimes... They ended up in the basement. This is Stuff the British Stole. This entire shelf is Barbados rum. This right here is all Barbados rum. So I have dozens of them. How many bottles do you have back there? 
So in terms of rum, there's probably around 350. And if you go up on the shelf, you can't see up on the shelves up there, but I have hundreds of smaller little sample bottles. So, you know, if you, if you said, how many examples of unique rums do you have? I'd say probably five, between five and 600 different, different types of rum. I'm a firm believer that everyone has at least one thing that they are a massive nerd about. You know, Star Trek or CrossFit or Irish fitness influencers on TikTok. I don't know, you do you. Well, prepare to be inducted into the global nerddom of rum. My name is Matt Petrick. I'm a former software engineer who caught the bug for rum, such to the point where I decided to give up my career of 30 years of software development to focus entirely on researching and writing about cocktails and rum in particular. We have a, a modest house here in New Orleans. And um, when, we, when we moved here, my wife said, like, you can keep all the rum collection, but you have to keep it all in your office. So my, my, <laughs> my, my office is very compact. It is wall-to-wall in Matt's Louisiana home office. He's got rum labels here from pretty much everywhere in the world, to the point that it's kind of easy to forget that rum itself is actually quite a simple spirit. Rum is sugarcane. And you take the sugarcane plant, you take the juice without sugarcane plant, you ferment it, and you would get something called a cane wine. You distill it, you concentrate it into its essence, and that's that's what that spirit is. Rum is the distilled essence of sugarcane. So Matt is part of this very exclusive group, a sort of international cabal of extreme rum connoisseurs. They're not a very big group. Everyone seems to know each other. And I can tell that because one day in 2018, they all got an invitation to something mysteriously dubbed the rum tasting of the century. And it was at the top, I guess, the penthouse floor suite of, of, of a very prestigious hotel in London, um, overlooking the Thames River. So this was sort of like a big deal for the, for the rum community. It was sort of beautifully set up. This rum tasting event in the ritziest part of Britain. This promised to be a rum tasting unlike anyone that they'd been to before. So we're all friends, even though we live at different points around the globe. Normally, like I would say of all the spirits um, categories out there, the, the rum people are the most sort of casual. Um, you can see, you, <laughs> you, 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 viewers can't necessarily see me, but, you know, I'm wearing, um, you know, I'm sort of dressed up in a, in a tropical shirt. You have a nice tropical shirt. But for this event... It's a good, it's a good tropical shirt. I it's like it. That's a good I, one. Yeah. It's sort of like my uniform. Yeah, but um, but yeah. For the record, Matt, Matt is a very dapper rum drinker. Thank you, I appreciate that. But it was very surprising to see these very casual people, like now in, in suits for the one and only time I've seen them in a suit. This surprise-suited rum brigade gradually file in, and that is when they saw it. If I remember correctly, it was just sitting sort of protected on a table there. Uh, and a very simple hand-blown bottles. I mean, nice, but still hand-blown bottles. Very sort of inconspicuous. Like, you wouldn't have thought anything was special in them. But there was something special inside those bottles. This is what people came for. 
the Harewood House rum made in 1780 was certainly the thing that got most of the attention. When it came time to open this rum, there was a heck of a time trying to open this bottle of rum and the wax just would, did not want to come off. And it became more and more tense and everybody sort of crowding around and with their cell phones held out like, I'm gonna record this in case something goes, you know, disastrously wrong. We've at least got it on film. And eventually, So what does two-century-old rum actually taste like? It was unusual. It was not quite what I imagined. I don't know, remember what I was imagining, but it still struck me as like, this is different than I pictured it maybe tasting like. A little almost like acidic, and I don't mean it was vinegar, but, but sort of slightly sharper than I might have imagined. But even tasting it, Matt and the others knew that the power of what was inside these bottles wasn't the liquid. It was the story they told. It, it's, I would consider that one of the, one of the high, high points of my career in rum is being amongst a very small group of people in this setting who, who's been able to experience something like this. I can't think of any bottle out or any set of bottles out there that uh, are older for this brief few minutes, like we're in a time machine and we get to experience what rum was made, how rum was made 250 years ago. It's a it's an amazing time machine and you know, I'm very fortunate to be able to be part of that. Which brings us to the question of exactly how is it this rum came to exist here in the UK in the first place? Who made it? Where did it come from? I don't believe there was much reported about that. I believe that you know people who owned and lived at Harewood Estate also owned an estate or several estates in Barbados, which would have made rum. So it's entirely likely that that rum would have come over to the UK from their estate on Barbados, shipped into the UK and maybe bottled somewhere in the UK. Barbados. All right. Here we go. I've lived in Barbados my entire life. If you are on a world map, um, a physical map, and you see a speck on the map somewhere near the Caribbean islands, you go to flick it off and it doesn't move, that is probably Barbados that you're seeing. (laughs) (laughs) Right now you are traipsing through the very loud streets of the capital of Barbados. This is Bridgetown. Hi, my name is Deborah Grant and I'm the master chatter at Chatter House Audio Tours. And we are a tour operating company that focuses on heritage and culture right here in the beautiful island of Barbados. Does it surprise you at all that allegedly the oldest bottles of rum can be tracked back to Barbados? Oh no, definitely not. Um, I wouldn't expect, it would surprise me if it was made anywhere else. <laughs> Too many times I say to people, Barbados is the home of rum and they go, oh, I didn't know that. That should not be the case. They should know where rum originated from. They should know the oldest rum, and they should know the best rum is all from right here in Barbados. <laughs> so at its peak, the British Empire commanded something in the vicinity of a quarter of the world's population and land. It's massive. But in a sense, it all starts here. Barbados was one of the first places colonised by the English abroad. We're talking back in the 1600s here. And the legacy of that? 
it still lingers here. There is this term for Barbados, they called it Little England. Yes. Why do they call it that? Pretty much because we were very British. <laughs> and some people would say we're still quite British. <laughs> everything from our tea, our, our food, everything would have been would have been influenced very much by the monarchy. But we also would have been leading in terms of contributing in sugar and rum to the economy of England. Do you think most people in Britain know about the relationship between Barbados and them? No, I don't think that right now the both those in England know us more as a vacation spot rather than how much we actually contributed to them. And many of my guests who come from England and I share that story with them, then that's when they realise just how much of an impact Barbados has been to the British in terms of their um, their wealth. But the part many tourists and rum drinkers may not fully realise is exactly who was making this rum. Deborah arrives at the water's edge to point out a place crucial to understanding Barbados. So we're now on the part of the boardwalk where we have been told that vessels would have come in to bring in those of African descent. So they would all have been here, right here on this boardwalk where we are walking on now is where those laborers would have been offloaded and they would have been taken across the street and then sold to the highest bidder. In other words, this is where thousands of enslaved African people first caught their glimpse of Barbados. And right here on the boardwalk... And this is where the rum would have been kept in the barrels before it headed off to England. How likely is it that the rum inside those bottles was distilled by slaves? Well, I think it's 100% likely that they were, were distilled by slaves. Really and truly, the machinery of rum production, so the people, the labour that was involved in sugar and rum production, was almost exclusively, especially by the 18th century, done by enslaved Africans. My name is Dr. Tara Innes. I'm a lecturer in the Department of History and Philosophy at the University of the West Indies Cave Hill Campus which is in Barbados. Barbados in the 17th and 18th century is a mixture of African labor and enslavers from England, uh, but also other spaces as well. Really and truly, what we know of rum today, so what you know of rum when you walk into your liquor store and and choose a, a bottle of rum off the shelf, that craft was really developed in Barbados. And in fact, it could be traded not only for goods and land, but people. It was used as ration, a ration in the Royal um, Navy. So it becomes such an important global product. Really and truly, you know, enslaved people are the backbone of the sugar and rum industry uh, during this period. It is an uncomfortable fact that this modern state of Barbados is a nation built on legacy of enslavement. And in fact, it was on this nation that the global slave trade would build its rules with something called the Barbados Slave Code. In 1661, the Barbados Slave Code is about developing this idea that the African body becomes a chattel slave. 
So it is really the most important legislation, and, and some scholars argue the foundational legislation that is taken to many other English colonies and reproduced that equates the African slave and the black body with being movable property. I don't think there's one single Barbadian um, who's had this history as part of their own ancestry. I don't think that they can deny that this is a part of their reality. This is the reason why they are here in Barbados. Um, this is truly a part of your DNA. You can't really dissect or, again, divorce this history from where we are today. But I don't think people are conscious of it on a daily basis. And yet, those rum bottles that were found in the basement of a grand country house all the way over in the UK, according to Tara, they could offer a peek into the lives of generations of enslaved people. The sugar plantation is a 24-hour enterprise. You woke up very early in the morning before dawn, uh, went out to the fields, worked, had probably very little to eat, uh, worked in the very hot sun, um, holing cane, dunging um, cane, so all of the preparation that goes into uh, sugar cane production, that is what you, your, your daily life was like. And those profits went into, so that money went almost everywhere into building the modern British economy. Everywhere in the British economy. You know, sometimes I think you actually just have to see it to really recognise that the hard work of these enslaved Africans in Barbados, it did transform the wealth of Great Britain. The streets are still paved with the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade, but the city of London is the base. If you know what you're looking for, then you will easily find residue left. Welcome to the Slave Trade Money Trail of London, and your guide is Daryl Blake, historian, researcher, and above all, a lover of all things that Britain has stolen. Um, today we will be walking the street. I, I need to put that on my new it's business still good. Card. It's still good. That line is still good. Yeah. Um, so we will be walking the streets of London, um, just taking in that nice British fresh air of Monday mornings. And while you are inhaling all that Monday has to offer, Daryl points out, no, he gesticulates at all of the buildings, these old beautiful, wealthy buildings that were acquired on the backs of people stolen from their homeland. And for Daryl, this is personal. So my mother's from Barbados and my father's from Jamaica. So I grew up in South London mm-hmm. um, in a place called Brixton. I um, spent most of my adolescent years there. Growing up in school, how much did you learn about the British Empire's connection to slavery? <sighs> so... When we learned about slavery, it was in the context of slaves were used for labour force to produce commodities to finance Britain's wealth. That's what we learned about. And then it was, however, due to the grace of people like uh, William Wilberforce, Britain became the first nation 
to or recognize nation to abolish the transatlantic slave trade. So that is literally the narrative that labor force was used to finance the commodities for Britain. However, Britain did do a great job of abolishing the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't talk about individual key components to the British Empire, who started it, why it started, the actual uh, amount or the wealth that was gained, the landmarks, the monuments still around today. None of that gets discussed. It's literally, that's what slavery was. For Darrell, what's actually missing from the way we talk about slaves and slave history, it's actually really simple. It's humans. They're human stories. Literal human beings did this to literal human beings. You know, it was a mindset, a, a wicked and evil mindset, where people who are descendants of that time in British history, we've had to just navigate and make it through and hopefully, hopefully our stories don't drive us insane. One of the biggest challenges that Daryl faces is, well, it's essentially shock. As he goes around pointing out the relics of slavery in London, there's an instinct that many people have to essentially want to play it down. It's hard for me to even go into certain spaces and certain rooms and tell the truth because they'd be like, mm, OK, was it really that bad, though? Are you sure? And, you know, no one actually owns slaves today. And, you know, yes, we are descendants of that time, but slavery's you know, it's finished, it's gone, it's, you know, we've moved on since then and, and now we're it's more of a di- cosmopolitan city, you know, London. It's, it's quite diverse, you know, and it's, you know, my, my favourite cab driver, he's definitely from Somalia. You know, it's, it's, it's it, we're, we're moving forward now, you know, it's really important that we look forward. That's the sort of narrative that gets brushed over conversations that we're having today. One of my mentors said to me, if you really want to find out what Britain's done, really want to find out, you have to funnel the money. The money trail is where everything is. And so where does the money trail of those bottles leave us? Well, on balance, everyone pretty much seems to agree that that rum, given what was going on in Barbados at the time, was almost definitely made by enslaved people. We also know that the bottles were found in the basement of a palatial UK country house not far outside of Leeds. So what is the thing that links Barbados and the basement? Well, it's this. The family that owned that building. Harewood House is uh, the property of um, the LaSalle's family, and the LaSalle's family used to own a number of plantations in Barbados. A whopping eight plantations, in fact. Of course, there's the connection with the royal family as well. The current Lord Harewood, I think, would be a cousin to Queen Elizabeth and her children. So the LaSalle's family is integral to the development of uh, Barbados as an English colony in the 17th century. They come to Barbados uh, to participate in the growing field of uh, sugar production. And it made them stunningly rich. Sugar grown by slaves. You know that basement? Indeed, that whole beautiful house. It's all there because of the people of Barbados. The wealth that is on display when you walk inside, I mean, it's just tremendous. And you walk outside and there's these 
lovely gardens. Is it possible to quantify how much of their wealth is linked to slavery? Is that is that something that could even be quantified? It It is uh, challenging to quantify. Even though families might have been involved in the slave trade or sl- and slavery, and some of their wealth was from those investments, as time passed, a lot of that money was either reinvested into other um, ventures and enterprises. So then it becomes very muddy as to where the real wealth was accumulated. But certainly for this family, this is, and this is one of the individual families that you could really look at, um, their investments in the Caribbean helped to solidify their place in what is now the aristocracy of England. They sort of become entwined, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can divorce this history from this particular site. In other words, it's not the bottles that were stolen. It was the basement and the building it sits within, all of it bought and paid for on the backs of stolen people. That's the theft. And somehow knowing that, it completely changes the way you look at this beautiful building and its manicured gardens. It's designed to impress and it's very hard to kind of not feel kind of awe and wonder when you, when, when you look, look at Harewood. It's designed to intimidate, I guess, as well. You know, it was designed to show off. Rebecca Burton is a curator who works here at Harewood House. And you heard her earlier describing the bottles in the basement. Not a word of what you've heard so far about the history of this place, not a single word is news to Rebecca. Nothing can ever make up for the atrocities that that happened, you know, not just in Harewood's past, but in, you know, Britain's past um, as well. You know, it goes far beyond just, just Harewood itself. We can't do anything to make up for our past. And actually that's something that Um, You know, the current Earl says quite often, you know, we can't change the past, but what we do have the power to do, you know, is is change the future. If you go to the Harewood House website today, you'll see that they're pretty upfront about the history of slavery that underpins this building. It's been that way ever since the crest of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, no one should be able to come to Harewood without understanding that the house and the grounds and everything in it essentially was was funded by the labour of enslaved individuals and the, the, the exploitation of, you know, the systematic exploitation of, of enslaved individuals. So that always has to be our starting point. But I think, you know, we always have to come back to where the money came from um, because it's impossible to understand this place without that knowledge. Except for some people in the UK, that knowledge... It's a very dangerous thing. You see, a couple of years ago, they commissioned some research to see just how many of these beautiful stately homes that dot the rolling green fields of England, just how many of them could link back to histories as dark as the one here at Harewood House. I think the fact that that slavery wealth is hidden is a problem in terms of memory and remembering it. How do you remember it when you've got no plantation houses like you've got in, say, Louisiana. You've got no huts where enslaved people were living. You've got no physical evidence of it. The only thing you have is 
money which has been repatriated and converted into fine and beautiful things, houses and lovely objects. Professor Corinne Fowler is an expert on country houses and colonial history. And a couple of years ago, there was this very big report examining just how many of these beautiful country houses have, you know, history that's perhaps not as polite as what they put on the plaque. A third of all National Trust properties, so nearly 100, were connected to various kinds of colonial activity. Sugar wealth was really important to Britain on many, many levels. The slavery system meant that huge profits could be made. Uh, Yes, there were individuals becoming wealthy, and those individuals often bought up land, railways, roads, uh, factories, schools, hospitals, charitable institutions. There are many ways in which that money found expression. Interestingly, when this report came out, the reaction from the media, shock jocks, was... Well, a lot. There was a lot of hostile media coverage of the report. I think it's a sensitive history for a population which wasn't that familiar with the history of British slavery, found that incongruous. You know, how can these lovely places have anything to do with something so horrible as slavery and some aspects of British colonial activity? That reaction she's talking about there, and also the reaction that Daryl gets when he talks about slavery, both of them are symptoms of what happens when there are these huge chunks of history that are sort of submerged from the public consciousness. But in a sense, it makes those bottles of rum an opportunity. Those bottles are a brilliant starting point for understanding the connection between sugar the byproduct of sugar, which was rum, what has Barbados got to do with Harwood House? How did that money um, go uh, buy and shape the estate? How did that affect the local people around the estate? All these questions are opened up by a very rare example in some ways of the physical evidence of a connection between a Barbadian, probably, a plantation and the rum that came from it all the way across the ocean to Harwood. So it is a brilliant item, an object, to show people and to start having those conversations. Which brings us back to that rum tasting of the century back in 2018. You see, they didn't just do a tasting. The decision was made, ultimately, um, to, to sell the rum. They went up for auction and and sold for lots of money. The Lassus family, you know, were sure that they couldn't possibly benefit um, from the proceeds of the sales, given the fact that, you know, um, it had been made through the stolen labour of enslaved individuals. Um, And so the money was actually donated to a local charity, uh, which kind of aims to bring young people together through um, arts and culture. And, you know, that money can be used to actually go back into local communities, um, particularly the Caribbean communities. I think, you know, by talking about Harold's past, and, you know, it can be a little bit kind of uncomfortable and, and challenging at times, But equally, you know, there's a lot of good that can come of it. For Matt, our mega rum connoisseur from the beginning, who attended that tasting of the century, knowing this history, drinking this history, it does present some complications. Does it change how you look at 
bottles like the Harewood House bottles, when you can evaluate it on its taste and its flavour, and then there's that other component to it. It's like, oh, this was sort of made by slaves, enslaved people. Does that ever change how you think about the rum when you're drinking it? You know, it's a, it's a challenging question. I can't escape it. I know, I know it's there. Rum seems to get particularly, like, tagged with enslaved people. And the same goes for tobacco. Same goes for indigo. It was, rum was just one of many commodities that came out of colonialism and slavery. And so, you know, if, if we, you know, want to pass a particular judgment on rum, we have to pass it on a whole, just many other things that we still, you know, consume every day and, and we don't think about. I guess the difference is it's, it's rare to have an, a definite article that we know was made by enslaved peoples. Like the legacy of sugar, the legacy of those things, like that, absolutely. But it's, it's rare to have an opportunity to literally taste a thing that was made by enslaved peoples. I think that's the distinction maybe. Yeah, I mean, I mean in that regard, yeah, you're correct. What is represented in those bottles is a spirit. We could call it the rum being a spirit. But beyond that, it's the spirit of our people as well. So the spirit of our identity, who we see our, uh, as our, of ourselves, that is really the essence of what has been stolen from us, the pride in ourselves. Um, Barbados's motto is, you know, pride in industry. Rum is part of our pride in industry. When we can't touch and feel our own history, when we don't see it reflected back on us, when we see that we have to go elsewhere to retrieve it, that is a loss, that is a theft, a very purposeful theft to our, of our being, of our identity, of our ability to go back into our, ourselves and say, look, we produce this. This is something that we should have pride in. This is something that our ancestors died for. In 1966, Barbados declared independence. And in 2021, the nation became a republic. The now King Charles even came and gave a speech. But we're still talking about a land that had 200 years of slavery. What do you do with that legacy? Back in Bridgetown, tour guide Deborah Grant, she walks up to a fairly unremarkable car park. And this lovely car park, concrete and grit car park, what they discovered for this car park was actually, it was the burial ground for those of us who did not make it to this land alive. Standing next to this car park, the towers over a hidden legacy of slavery, Deborah pulls out small bottle of rum. So every time I'm here, I do remember them. I would come and do a libation here and pay tribute to my ancestors that are here. It's an African um, tribute to the ancestors. You pretty much stand with, usually without shoes on because you're at one with the ground and you use a spirited um, liquid. In my case, um, I would use rum um, because I think rum is the most appropriate liquid to use. There's a, there's a sense of I don't know, at one with the spirits, and it just feels different. I said earlier that Barbados was a nation built on a legacy of slavery, and whilst that is an uncomfortable truth, for Deborah, it doesn't necessarily have to infuse the future. I see it as something that happened to a people, 
and uh, people that can change their journey because they once they know who they are, then they can become the people that they once were again. We're not slaves, we're African, we're African descendants, we're Africans that were taken and taken to other parts of the world. But that doesn't make us slaves as part of our DNA, that's not it. We need to believe in ourselves that we can run our countries without having to be tied to the colonizers. Stuff the British Stole is produced by Leah Simone Bowen, Eunice Kim and Zoe Ferguson. It is written, edited and hosted by me. I'm Mark Fennell. The sound mixing that you're listening to right now was Martin Peralta and the executive producer is Amrutha Slee for ABC RN and Cecil Fernandez at CBC Podcasts. Very special thank you to Scott Weatherhead, Russell Newlove, Priscilla Ann Barrow and Daniel Pereira. Stuff the British Stole is a production of ABC RN in partnership with CBC Podcasts.